It's your first night guarding the courthouse on your own. It's not a bad job. The only real negative is, well, the boredom. As your body relaxes against the white pillar of the courthouse, you hear footsteps. You look around until you realize the footsteps aren't outside. They're coming from inside the courthouse. You peer in the window and see a figure. A beautiful woman with jet black hair slowly turns to face you. She smiles. You open the courthouse door and step inside, and the streetlights go dark. There's no longer any light illuminating the inside of the courtroom, and for some reason, you smell something burning. The courthouse door slams behind you. You run to it, but it's locked. You look behind you. Facing you from the other end of the courtroom is a woman in a leather mask. Her skin is dry and transparent. She wears a torn, flowing black dress. She walks closer, bloodshot eyes peering out from behind the leather mask that covers her nose and mouth. She slowly shows you what she's holding in her hand. A loaded revolver. She raises her six-shooter and aims between your eyes. From behind the thick leather mask covering her mouth, you hear her whisper to you, say your prayers. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Calcasieu Courthouse in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review. Along the southern border of Louisiana lies the quiet, peaceful town of Lake Charles. A long row of quaint, modest houses sits on the still lake. But once you go a little bit inland, the small, 40-block town of Lake Charles makes you feel like you've stepped into a time long forgotten. Large red brick buildings and Victorian mansions cover the town, which was untouched by architects and developers until the early 1900s. In the center of Lake Charles, Louisiana, stands the Calcasieu Parish Courthouse. The modest wooden courthouse was built in the late 19th century by Louisiana settlers. Although not much is known about the courthouse's early days, as it was burnt down by a massive fire on April 23, 1910. The courthouse was rebuilt in 1910, and today it stands, preserved as an eerie reminder of the Victorian era. Tall marble columns line the front of the courthouse, and large, curved ceilings and arches make the building feel frozen in time. 
The inside of the courthouse is cavernous and cold, with a dilapidated witness stand from the Victorian era, along with an antique jury box and judge's booth that are still used in court cases to this day. The Calcasieu Courthouse has many doors, doors that lock on their own. Courthouse employees have also reported office machinery turning on, on its own, as well as odd surges of electricity. Some have even claimed that they can smell the old-fashioned perfume of a woman from about the 1940s. Sometimes they can smell burning human hair. Many have said they can hear a woman laughing when there's nobody to be seen. Some can even hear her screaming. But what most people who visit the courthouse don't know is the building's dark history that many employees believe has left the courthouse haunted. A famous execution took place here once, and many believe that the victim's spirit never left the premises. The year is 1939. You walk through the town of Lake Charles, Louisiana, headed for the brothel. You don't fancy yourself a womanizer. In fact, you'd love to meet someone real, someone who could genuinely care for you. But proper women don't want anything to do with a prize fighter, especially one like you. You're down on your luck. You've got no money. And you've had one too many fights where you had too much to drink, and your opponent paid the ultimate price. You're a regular outlaw. You even go by the name of Cowboy, Claude Cowboy Henry. As you walk toward the Lake Charles brothel, something catches your eye. Outside a nearby bar, a beautiful woman with jet black hair and a flowing white dress is standing silently alone, facing the wall of the bar. She looks down at the ground, fixated on something. You approach her, curiously, but she doesn't see you. On the ground in front of her is an injured bird. Its wing is broken. It flutters around in the ground, right next to the woman's high heels. You look her in the face, expecting her to be worried, but she's not. Her expression is completely calm. Her eyes glazed over as she stares at the bird struggling on the ground. An eerie smile plays on her lips. She's whispering, but you aren't sure to whom. Her hand twitches, itching to reach out, and her head snaps around to you. She's still smiling, but now her eyes are dark, violent. You stumble backward as she disappears around the side of the building. Once you're inside the brothel, you see the usual crowd of women, older, tired women, who roll their eyes and smirk at you. Every kiss feels paid for, until you realize in the back of the room, she's there. The girl with the black hair and the white dress. She looks at you, as surprised to see you as you are to see her. Your heart is still pounding from the scare she gave you earlier, but there's something about her. You can't look away. 
you can't explain it. Your movements are almost beyond your control as you tip your hat to her. And she smiles softly back at you. The two of you go to a room, and for some reason, all you want to do is talk to her. You want to know everything about her. Her name is Tony Joe. She's 23 years old. Her mother died when she was six, and her father beat her. So she ran away and became a sex worker when she was 14. She's addicted to cocaine, alcohol, and marijuana. And she's been arrested, just like you. And with all she's been through, she's still beautiful. You and Tony Joe travel to California for your honeymoon. You see a different side of her. One that's caring, vulnerable. One that wants to feel loved. You even spend a week getting her off of hard drugs. It seems that the two of you have found something beautiful together. Until... You get a telegram to appear in court in Texas. Years ago, you got into a bar brawl with an off-duty police officer and killed him. Tony Joe begs you not to go. She asks you to go on the run with her, but you assure her that you're a changed man and you have to turn yourself in. Maybe the judge will be lenient on you and only give you a few years, and then you and Tony Joe can spend the rest of your lives together. You take Tony Joe to Texas with you, promising her that everything will be okay. But it isn't. The judge sentences you to 50 years in a Texas prison. You see Tony Joe collapse in the stands. You look to the judge, pleading. He hesitates, but then nods. You're led over to your weeping wife to say one last goodbye. As you approach Tony Joe, she still lies in a heap on the floor, unmoving. Once again, she's whispering to herself. You reach out to gently touch her shoulder when suddenly her head snaps up to meet your gaze. Her eyes are dry and vacant. An eerie smile is on her face. You stumble back, surprised. You begin to ask her what's wrong, but you realize She's not listening. She's still muttering something to herself, repeating something over and over. You slowly lean in to hear what she's saying. I'll get you out, she repeats. I'll kill them all. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to the story. In 1939, in Louisiana, Tony Joe Henry, a beautiful but merciless former sex worker and cocaine addict, devised a plan to get her husband, Claude Cowboy Henry, out of prison. She recruited the help of an AWOL soldier named Archie Burke. They would pretend to be newlyweds and hitchhike from Louisiana to Texas stealing cars and robbing banks along the way until they reached the Texas State Penitentiary. But the plan took a violent turn when they encountered a man on a deserted Louisiana road. It was Valentine's Day, 1940, 
and Joseph P. Calloway was delivering a brand new Ford V8 coupe to a friend in Jennings, Louisiana, when he saw a young couple on the side of the road. He pulled over and asked if they need a ride. The couple graciously accepted, a little too quickly, it seemed. The couple sat in the back seat together, staring silently ahead. After a few moments of silence, Joseph asked them where they were from and what they planned on doing on this beautiful Valentine's Day. The couple stared coldly ahead without responding. Joseph chuckled nervously to himself and kept driving. After a few minutes, Joseph decided to break the silence again. He asked the couple where they met, but again was met with a cold silence. The beautiful dainty woman with jet black hair and cold eyes reached into her jacket and kept it there, resting on something Joseph couldn't see in his rearview mirror. Joseph's heart beat faster. His throat dried up. He glanced in his rearview mirror again at the husband, but the husband did not meet his gaze. He stared forward, a serious, glazed-over look in his eyes, like a corpse. Pull over, the woman said suddenly. Joseph was confused. He looked around for where she might want to be dropped off, but they were driving through the middle of nowhere. Either this couple was hitchhiking to a desolate field, or... Joseph turned to see that the wife was holding a revolver to his head. His heart skipped a beat. The husband stared ahead, emotionless, not making eye contact with anyone in the car. And the wife, she was staring right at him with a look in her eyes that chilled him to the bone. Joseph began to stutter and told the couple he was not looking for any trouble, but the gorgeous dark woman just repeated herself and softly told him to pull over. Joseph complied, trembling. Joseph stepped out of the car, terrified for his life. He wondered if these people were just robbers or worse. He took a deep breath and placed his hands above his head, shaking. He stuttered, trying to tell the woman that he had a wife and children, begging her not to do anything cruel, assuring she could have any money she wanted. She stood there in silence and raised the gun to his head. She told him to take off all his clothing. Joseph began to tremble once again. He looked to the husband, who still hadn't gotten out of the car, for any sort of help or assurance. The husband stared straight ahead, expressionless. Joseph looked back to the wife, and once again she repeated her order. Shaking, Joseph slowly took his clothes off until he was just in his undergarments. A smirk crept across the wife's face. She looked off to the side and laughed, as if she was sharing a joke with someone. But there was no one there. Then she demanded that Joseph take all his clothing off. Joseph, embarrassed and violated, but desperate, took off the rest of his clothes. The wife opened the trunk of Joseph's car. 
Get in here, she ordered. Joseph looked at the husband, pleading. He was sure they were just going to steal his clothes and his car. Why did they need him to get into the trunk? The husband shrugged coldly and repeated his wife's order. Get in. Naked and terrified, Joseph got into the trunk of his own car. Joseph laid in a fetal position in the trunk of his own car. This must be a blackmailing technique, he thought to himself. They wouldn't actually hurt him. They would just scare him into keeping his mouth shut or giving them money. But as he lay there, he began to feel something more than fear. It was like a presence was surrounding him, an oppressive darkness, a force that felt alive. His heart pounded so hard, it was going to break through his ribs. And then, suddenly, the car stopped. Joseph heard footsteps approaching him. Joseph heard the woman and the man arguing about somebody by the name of Cowboy. They snapped at each other about how they were going to break him out of prison, which bank they were going to rob first. Light shot into Joseph's eyes as the woman opened the trunk of the car. He felt small, frail, and pathetic. She yanked him out of the trunk and he stumbled out onto the dirt. Joseph looked around. He was in an abandoned field. Joseph began to breathe faster and beg for his life. The husband got back into the car and shut the door. The wife took the six-shooter out of her purse and opened the barrel to show Joseph. It was unloaded. It had been unloaded the whole time. Joseph could have escaped if he just overpowered her. But it was too late now. The wife took six bullets and loaded them into the gun, one by one, despite Joseph's pleas for mercy. Joseph cried to her that he wouldn't say a thing, that he would pretend he didn't see either of their faces. The woman just kept loading the gun. She told him to get on his knees. Joseph began to feel sick. He glanced back at the husband in the car, who by this point looked horrified as well. He began banging on the car door, shouting for this woman, Tony Joe, to stop what she was doing. But Tony Joe wasn't paying him any attention. She was looking to the side again, whispering. She was talking to someone, someone who wasn't there. Then her head snapped back to Joseph with a sickening smile. Tony Joe forced Joseph onto his knees. She raised the gun and pointed it at his head. His heart began to beat faster. He tried to think of anything he could say to talk his way out of the situation. Anything. Anything at all. Say your prayers, the woman said. Shocked, Joseph opened his mouth to plead for mercy. Before he could say anything, Tony Joe shot him right between the eyes. From the car, Tony Joe's accomplice, Arky's heart skipped and his body froze. Murder wasn't part of their plan. 
1940, Tony Joe and Archie Burke posed as hitchhiking newlyweds. When they were picked up by a good Samaritan, Joseph P. Calloway, they stole his car, his clothes, and Tony Joe shot him in the middle of a field. But before Tony Joe could try to break Cowboy out of prison, she was abandoned by Archie and turned into the police and put on trial for murder at the Calcasieu Courthouse. You had never been afraid during a trial. In all your years, you had seen defendants be afraid. You had seen lawyers be afraid. Witnesses were almost always afraid. But a judge? A judge shouldn't have anything to be scared of. The defendant, Tony Joe Henry, had already been sentenced to death twice. Somehow she had been granted two appeals and was on trial for a third time. She sat staring at you, her eyes pierced right through you, and she had a calm, disturbing smile on her lips. Reporters flocked around her, taking photos, asking questions. She was a courthouse celebrity. You thought to yourself, perhaps if she had just robbed Joseph Calloway and not killed him, her trial would not have gotten as much attention. Or perhaps if she was a man, she would have been sentenced to death immediately, without much deliberation. They had nicknamed her Tiger Girl for her fierce attitude and striking good looks. The press couldn't get enough of her story. A beautiful woman with impeccable charm who faced a potential death sentence for shooting a man right between the eyes. But you knew there was something deeply wrong with this woman. Every time she was transferred from the jailhouse to the courtroom, the prison guards put extra restraints on her. You thought this was odd, because she was much smaller than any of the guards and would not have been able to overpower them. But, for some reason, they were afraid of her. It was as if there was some evil inside of her that they were trying to shackle. Now she sat, staring at you. Her wrists rubbed raw with handcuffs, smirking, welcoming whatever sentence you would have for her. You couldn't help but be chilled by her calm demeanor, especially when you realized that in every press clipping you had seen of the trial, Tony Joe was smiling. Tony Joe's lawyer began to present his defense, but Tony Joe's attention was elsewhere. She had no intention of defending herself, and she didn't seem afraid. You wondered how she didn't have any dread about the electric chair, any fear of what it would feel like when the deadly shock tore through her body. Fear of whether she would see her skin sizzle, feel her eyes melt, smell her hair burn, or if she would be dead before her body began to disintegrate. However, Tony Joe just stared forward in the courtroom, her eyes glazed over, an eerie smile on her face. As her lawyer continued his speech, he couldn't help noticing that Tony Joe had turned her face and began to whisper. She was speaking to nobody, and you were too far away to hear what she was saying. She listened to whoever or whatever she was talking to, and then nodded, 
and looked at you. A slight smile crept across her face. She made eye contact with you, and your heart began to beat faster. You looked at the lawyer in hopes he could see what you were seeing, but he was too involved in his defense speech. While the jury was deliberating, Tony Joe did not rise from her seat. She spent the whole time muttering, whispering, laughing to the demon she saw next to her. You waited for the jury, aching for this trial to end. The jury handed you their written decision. You held it in your trembling hand, trying to breathe deeply to calm yourself. You didn't dare look at Tony Joe, but you could feel her staring into you with that haunting, calm expression on her face. You opened the paper and read the verdict. Guilty. Tony Joe would be sentenced to death by electric chair. A silence hung over the courtroom. When you finally raised your eyes to meet Tony Joe's gaze, you saw her smiling. She turned her head, looking to the invisible thing next to her, and gave a sharp nod. The lights went out in the courthouse. You could hear the reporters and the jury scuffle around, blind and afraid in the dark. You went in search of a light switch, but you didn't know where to feel for one. The lights in this courthouse had never gone out before. It must have been a blackout across the whole town. Suddenly, you see one light begin to turn on, dimly. It was the light right above Tony Joe. During the blackout, she hadn't moved. She had remained calmly in her seat, except somehow her handcuffs were unlocked. Her chains and restraints were all laid out on the table in front of her. You stared at her as she calmly rose, smiled at you, and walked, unaccompanied, to the jailhouse to await her death. <laughs> we'll return to our story in just a moment. Now, our story continues. It was the morning of Tony Joe Henry's execution. Ironically, while waiting out her death sentence, she was treated better than she had been for most of her life. Fans, benefactors, and donors sent furniture, flowers, even a vanity mirror and a black and white puppy to Tony Joe's cell, which ended up looking more like a hotel room. She sat staring at her reflection in her vanity mirror, brushing her beautiful black hair, dressed in an elegant flowing black gown and black pumps. A reporter had come to photograph her on what would be her final morning. As the cameraman fumbled with his camera, she rolled her eyes at him and said, I've smiled twice, mister. Have you any idea how much talent is being wasted here today? Tony Joe turned to see that the warden had opened her cell. She smiled at him calmly. If only he knew what she knew, the deal that she had made right before she was sentenced. The warden told her it was time to shave her head for the execution. She resisted the idea. She wanted to keep her beautiful jet black hair, even after she was through with the electric chair. The warden didn't understand why. 
but as a favor to the beautiful Tiger Girl, he gave her a short-cropped, army-style haircut instead of shaving her head completely, and let her wear a stylish, bright shawl over her hair on the way to the execution room. When he asked her if she had any last words, Tony Joe smiled and whispered, I think not. Tony Joe left her cell and made her way to the portable electric chair. The chair had been brought to the Calcasieu Courthouse and Jail from Angola, Louisiana. And because the jailhouse was unsure of how much power it needed, they brought in an excessive amount of portable generators. She laughed to herself when she saw the generators. She found it funny that anyone thought a few thousand volts of electricity would send her away. Tony Joe stopped when she saw the chair. Something about it was so cold, so unforgiving, so final. The way it seemed to look her in the eyes and say, Say your prayers. A guard nudged Tony Joe forward. She had asked one favor of the guards, that if she resisted, she would not be dragged to the chair. She couldn't think of anything more degrading than the newspapers reporting that guards had to drag her to the electric chair while she desperately fought against them in vain. No, she had to go willingly. After all, the electrocution might hurt, but she had nothing to fear. Tony Joe walked up to the chair, gave it a defiant smile, and sat down. The chair was eerily similar to a throne, with large armrests and a high back. Tony sat like a queen, facing her subjects. Her royal guards strapped her into the chair with leather belts, one around her waist, one around each arm, one around each wrist, one around her hips, one around each knee, one around each ankle. She stared straight ahead, smiling blankly. A guard removed her shawl to reveal her short, cropped hair. They placed a soaking wet sponge filled with salt water on her head to make sure the electricity had no problem getting to her. She glanced over to the multiple massive energy generators hooked up to the chair. She welcomed them, challenged them. She knew that no matter how bad the electrocution hurt, she would prevail. Finally, a metal headpiece was placed on top of the sponge on her head, a crown for the queen. She smiled to herself. These people thought they could get rid of her. The judge thought he could rid her from this courthouse, from the planet. They knew nothing. Tony Joe began to laugh quietly to herself. They couldn't get rid of her. She wasn't going anywhere. She made the deal before she was sentenced. The guards looked at her, clearly unsettled, even though she was completely restrained. The executioner stumbled up to her with a leather face mask to cover her nose and mouth. Even as he covered her mouth, she was still smiling. Her eyes stared at something past them, something they could not see. She could see him, though. A tall, thin man cloaked in black, with leathery hands, 
and a skeletal, deep red face. His eyes burned through her, but she met his gaze. Nobody else could see her master, but he had power over them all. And he granted her an eternity in this very courthouse. Goodbye, Tony Joe, the executioner whispered. The skeletal man in the black cloak nodded once at Tony Joe. She smiled and nodded back at him. Tony Joe was pronounced dead at 12 past noon on Saturday, November 28, 1942. She was killed by over 2,000 volts of electricity. Thousands of townspeople asked to see the tiger girl's dead body, and yet nobody claimed her. While Tony Joe might have left this world, many say her spirit never left the courthouse. Even today, Tony Joe's spirit lingers in the Calcasieu courthouse, surging through the electricity, making sure that even in death, her name is never forgotten. Your Honor, your lawyer says, jail time would be a significant risk to my client's physical and mental well-being. The judge seems to be listening. You suppose it doesn't hurt that your uncle is the district attorney for Calcasieu Parish. The court ultimately ruled that the breathalyzer was out of date. Potentially functional, but out of date. A smirk creeps across your face. By a technicality, you would walk free. During a court recess, you head over to the men's room. A mousy-looking reporter steps in your way. You don't listen to whatever she has to say. You assume she's going to ask the same question they're all asking whether or not you're going to pay the cyclist's medical bills. You walk past her. You're smarter than to open your mouth to some shrill-voiced Sarah Lawrence graduate junior reporter and get dragged on whatever low-end online newspaper she works for. The upper floor of the courthouse is far more peaceful and desolate. The men's room is empty. After washing your hands, you take a look at yourself in the mirror. You smile. You look sharp. You brush your hair to the side and straighten out your tie. Maybe after this you can... The lights go out in the bathroom. You tense up for a moment, but then realize it must be one of those motion-sensing automatic lights. A stall door slams shut behind you. Weird. You didn't think anyone else was in the bathroom. Hello? You call out. No one answers. You step closer to the stall, although you can barely see what direction you're walking in. A little strange to run into a bathroom stall without turning the light on, you think. You call out, hoping that a simple response will calm your nerves. Whoever's in the stall doesn't answer. You sigh and turn away trying to feel your way to the exit door. There it is. Your hand moves across the wall for a light switch. Found it. But that's odd. It's a manual switch, not motion sensing. And it's switched to the off position. Who could have done that while you were alone in the bathroom? 
you flip the switch on. All the lights in the bathroom suddenly turn on, as if powered with thousands of volts of electricity. The lights flicker, and you turn for the door when the door slams. On its own, it seems. You rush over to open it, and the lights are out once again. Suddenly, there's a foul smell coming from the walls of the men's room. It smells like something burning. For some reason, you remember the time your younger sister singed your hair at a family barbecue when you were little. You don't know why, but you swear you can absolutely smell burning hair coming from the walls of the bathroom. All right, very funny, you shout. Whoever slammed the door also locked it from the outside. Maybe it was that awful mousy reporter, thinking it's her liberal civic duty to pull a stupid prank on any rich defendant who won't answer her questions. Come on now, you cry. Let me out! But you hear nothing from the other side of the door. As repulsive as it is, you get on the floor of the bathroom and peer under the heavy locked door to see if you can catch a glimpse of whoever slammed it. There, you see the bottoms of black high heels walking away. It had to have been the reporter. Your heart nearly stops. You could have sworn that was a woman screaming. It sounded far away, but it also sounded like it was coming from inside the men's room. You turn back to the locked stall. Who's there? You demand. Still, you get no answer. Your heart begins to beat faster. You knock on the stall door. There's no response. The door unlocks itself. Your heart racing. You begin to step into the stall. Maybe this is all a bad dream. Maybe there's nothing here at all and you wake up in your own bed. As you enter the stall, you see a woman sitting in the corner. Her body is slumped, unconscious, or worse. She wears a flowing black dress, a bright headscarf, and black high heels. Who is this woman? Is she even alive? You approach her to see if she's breathing. You can't see her face. Her neck is twisted downward, unnaturally. You reach out to touch her. Her head snaps up and she faces you. You gasp. She has a leather execution mask covering her face. You immediately begin to shake. You try to make a run for the door, but for some reason, you're frozen. Your feet won't move. Your body won't turn. Your eyes stay glued on the rotting face of this woman. She's whispering something to you through the mask. You can't understand her. You look down at her hands and realize they're bound to the floor with leather straps. Her ankles, too, are somehow bound to the floor. She tries to speak to you again. Trembling, your hand reaches toward the leather mask covering her mouth. You unfasten it, and it falls to the floor. A terrifying smile creeps across her face. She whispers to you, 
Remember my face. Remember my name. I'm not going anywhere. Tony Joe Henry, the famous Tiger Girl, tried and condemned at the Calcasieu Courthouse, may have been the only woman executed by electric chair in the state of Louisiana. But that doesn't mean her spirit has left the courthouse. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A lot of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Olivia De Laurentiis. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>